Killing, torturing, raping people is wrong, period. Who was behind this Palestinian identity? Was it the rest of the Arab world saying that, hey, you guys there, fight with the local yes, Jews? Yes, it was the same colonial project that created Palestine that also accepted the right of the Jews to return. Either both are illegal or both are legal. Who do we call Israelis? Because the world assumes that Israelis are actually immigrants from Europe. Yeah, exactly. And you know, that's not true. They won't even refer to them as Israelis. After 70 years, boss, how long do you need to become local? I don't get it. Even the Hamas is made out of Palestinians who grew up in a very violent land. The problem is Hamas and people like Hamas are the best friends of Jewish extremists. And this is how Israeli carrots and sticks works. You make peace with us now or else you keep losing more and more and more land because we need to finish the separation of the two states now. But it's turned into a government that probably doesn't want the two state solution out here. So the Palestinians are now stuck. So this is a never ending problem? It's a never ending. And you won't see this on social media. When it comes to geopolitics, there's a lot of people who have a lot of opinions. But personally, I believe you should listen to people who are subject experts, who work in a geopolitical domain, who are qualified to speak about geopolitics. And that's exactly what Abhijit Ayer Mitra is. The first episode, if you've consumed it, was very heavy. It was about the present day scenario about the Israel-Palestine war situation. This one is an attempt at understanding the history further. I do believe that you need to get to the depths of history to truly understand why the present is the way it is. So without further ado, this is the history of Judaism, the early history of Islam, and the reason why this Palestine versus Israel situation is even happening in the first place. Sit back and get ready to download a lot of information from this episode of TRS. Okay, welcome to part two of this conversation. Um, this one's going to be about the history of Israel as a landmass. We're going to cover the history of Judaism. We're going to cover the history of the whole Palestine conflict. Uh, we're going to go all the way up till 2023. I do recommend that you watch part one of the episode before you watch this uh, particular conversation. AIM, we're talking about Israel. Uh, what's a right point to begin? I don't know what the right point to begin is, but uh, I think I'm... Uh... We're going to venture into territory now that's going to get me unprecedented abuse and probably fatwas. So you also better prepare for that. But, you know, it is what it is. We do what we have to. Okay. So um, maybe let's begin in ancient times because that's all I know about this whole Israel conflict that it's actually hundreds of thousands of years old. Um, you have to understand what happened then to truly understand what happened now. So I'll let you take it forward from here. Bingo. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it starts off with A, we will not acknowledge Israel. B, Israel is a colonial construct. We are the original inhabitants and Israel is a colonial construct. Uh, therefore, we can't recognize it. Uh, and you are basically, it's like asking an Indian to say, uh, you should accept British rule of India in perpetuity. See, it isn't. And this is where the history comes in, bad history comes in, which we'll discuss in the history section, whenever you want to go there. Mm -hmm. um, 
so their arguments, I've never come across a cogent pro-Palestinian argument that is actually pro-Palestinian and anti-Hamas. There is always this equivalence. You know, I think the best thing the Palestinians can do is follow Gandhi. Because then there would be absolutely no moral equivalence. Uh, and, you know, this was the genius of Gandhi. He found the perfect tool, civil disobedience and peaceful protest against a state that was based, the British Empire was based on the rule of law. Okay. Israel is a state based on the rule of law. The only reason Israel has gotten as much as it can is because the Palestinians never completely renounce violence. I mean, you can see the videos, you know, in English, he'd say we want peace. In Arabic, he'd be telling people, you know, go kill a few Jews, bomb them, this and that, etc., etc. This is not the way nonviolence works. Either nonviolence is absolute or it doesn't exist, right? And this is again Gandhi calling off the uh, 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 non-cooperation movement because of what happened, the Chori Chora, I think that was the police. They burned the, uh, they, they, they burnt the police station and he called the entire thing off. Because see, there can be no, uh, I am peaceful, but you know, yeah, you know, him going burning cops, I'm not going to condemn it. I'm just going to pretend that that wasn't me. That was also me, right? So this externalization and not just externalization, also refused to condemn. You have to understand their victims. That is why they went and killed those 1,400 settlers, as they call them. They won't even refer to them as Israelis. They won't even refer to them as somebody who has a right to be out there. Okay? After 70 years, boss, how long do you need to become local? Okay? Uh, how long do you want to be called a refugee? Uh, I don't get it. I really don't get it. What do you do? And then there is... Palestine's own extremely difficult history with its neighbors. You know, you can also claim that Palestine is a colonial construct. Again, we'll come to that. But then you look at how the Palestinians have treated their own neighbors. Uh, in 1973, when the Yom Kippur War happened and Israel seized the whole of the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, the Sinai Peninsula is about two, three times the size of Israel. So Israel suddenly became a country that... Uh, was three times its previous size, if not more. In 79, in return for peace, they gave the entire territory back to Egypt. Okay. Uh, in return for peace. The one peace that was not given back was Gaza. And you know why? It's because the Egyptian president at the time, Arwar al-Sadat, he did not want Gaza back. It was too problematic for him and the population there was too problematic for him to deal with. He did not want it back. He said, please keep it. I don't want it. So what will happen is in 67, uh, Israel conquered the whole of the Sinai Peninsula and they uh, conquered Gaza as well, which had been Egyptian till then. And so Israel became three times its size because Sinai plus Gaza is at least twice the size of Israel. So Israel became three times its size. In 73, after the Yom Kippur War, uh, they, the Egyptians decided to start talking to the Israelis. And in 79, peace was achieved where Israel gives up 66% of what of the territory under its control. You tell me, assume Israel had annexed Sinai and it was one country now. Who gives up two-thirds of their territory to make peace? Well, it wasn't their territory, but assume it was. They gave it up. Okay, it was giving back to the Egyptians what was theirs. Why? Because they, we've signed a peace deal. Okay. Anwar al-Sadat, the president in 79, did not want back 
want back Gaza. Even though Gaza had been under Egyptian control till 1967, he did not want it back because the problem, uh, it was a highly radicalized, problematic uh, strip of land. Okay. In uh, the same thing happened in uh, Jordan. In Jordan, when the pa partition of Palestine happens in 1948, uh, Jordan annexes the West Bank, what is today called the West Bank. The poor man, King Hussein, had to suffer so much trouble because of it, because there were repeated Palestinian attempts to overthrow him, kill him, and overtake the state of Jordan, to make, to take over Jordan from its monarch. Okay. In Lebanon, people don't want to talk about the fact how Palestinian refugees effectively, because of the demographic change it brought about in Lebanon, were the cause of the civil war that shattered that country forever. Beirut used to be called the Paris of the Levant, the Paris of the East. It That Paris of the East no longer exists. Why? Because of a Palestinian demographic change out there, because they radicalized that area. It wasn't just going there and settling down. It was carrying out terror attacks. I want everybody to Google the Black September attacks in Jordan, uh, where, where, where they attempted to overthrow the king uh, of Jordan. Uh, everybody needs to Google uh, what the PLO did in uh, uh, Lebanon. And how has their behavior as refugees in somebody else's country been exemplary? Should they be punished for it back home? No. But should there be introspection? Yes. You know, it's... There has to be some introspection somewhere. And then again, what happens in 2005? Now, there was a government of Yitzhak Rabin and Shimon Peres who signed the deal with the PLO, with Yasser Arafat, and made what is called the Oslo peace process and everything. Um, what happens with that, which creates the kernel of the independent, what was meant to become the independent Palestinian state, the West Bank plus Gaza. And what ends up happening is uh, Yitzhak Rabin is killed by a Jewish fundamentalist. Uh, he's succeeded by his foreign minister, Shimon Peres, who was crucial to making that peace. Guess who scuttled Shimon Peres? This, Shimon Peres was a man wedded to peace. He wanted more than anything else to see two countries at peace with each other uh, and at peace with their neighbors. He was moving towards peace. What did the Palestinians do? They started suicide bombing of commuter buses in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, in which 50, 70, 80 people would die. And these aren't big numbers in India. For Israel, which is just 7 million, multi India is 200 times that. So 70 people dead in a suicide bombing in Jerusalem in dead in India is 1400 dead in India would India respond to something like that or not any country would respond to that kind of numbers right fine Yitzhak Rabin was killed by a Jewish extremist but then why did you carry out terror bombings against a guy who was committed to a two-state solution anyway it set the entire thing back that was the end of that particular phase then a particularly what they consider, you know, the uh, incarnation of the devil, a guy called Ariel Sharon becomes prime minister. He wants to show again his bona fides and say, if you give me peace, the deal was land for peace. If you give me peace, I will give you land. And Gaza at this time had lots of uh, Israeli kibbutzes that were employing, that were the main source of employment in that region. What is a kibbutz? A kibbutz is like a collective. It's like a co-op society right? Um, community. A community, yeah. A community of settlers, pioneers who are going there, making it green, 
uh, setting up agriculture or production or whatever out there. Um, so he dismantles all these collective Jewish collective societies, forcibly drags all of them back, and he's showing, look, I am willing to do for you what we did with Egypt in 1979, which is dismantle everything from the Gaza Strip and give you your independence. Okay. And this is now held up to the West Bank saying, look, we did it in Gaza. We've given you, we've withdrawn everything. We're not even negotiating about. So you'll keep hearing the Palestinians say, oh, they're, they're going on building settlements, more settlements, and they're annexing more land. Everything is up for negotiation. But see, it's a carrot and stick policy. Now, you know, you can't say a negotiation is always going to be static. Okay. So if I'm negotiating with you today, think of it purely as a business transaction. Okay. Uh, Assume I'm in the position of advantage here. You desperately need something. Uh, let's assume this is in the Ranveer Allahabadiya podcast, okay? Uh, and I am uh, some major famous podcaster and I am a really good looking young guy and you're this bald, fat, ugly gay man, uh, two bit nothing who's coming to me for a favor, okay? I will say, you know, Ranveer Beta Dek. I'm, uh, I will give you a, a, a two-hour podcast. And you'll say, no, 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 no. And we get into a dispute and you come back. The next time around, I'm going to say, I'm not going to give you a two-hour podcast. I'm going to give you a one-and-a-half-hour podcast. You aren't happy with that. You go back and you know when you come back the next time, you're only going to get a one-hour podcast. Right? I'm simplifying it for our viewers sure. because in this context, it's understandable. Yeah. Now, when you know that this is the pattern of negotiation, you settle for the one and a half hour podcast, right? And this is how Israeli carrots and sticks works. You make peace with us now or else you'll keep losing more and more and more land. That doesn't mean that land is permanently lost to you, but you better sit down and negotiate with us because we need to finish the separation of the two states now. Okay. So one second, the solution-oriented mindset is Israel's. That's what you're saying. And it used to be Israel's and then the Palestinians were so intransigent that you now have Netanyahu who is not pro. In in word, he is pro a two-state solution, but in action, he is not pro a two-state solution. In action, what is he? In action, he wants Israeli occupation of uh, uh, West Bank to continue. Uh, well, they're not in occupation of West Bank technically, but he wants more and more land to be taken up by settlers. So he he's more, he's more stick, less carrot. Okay. Um, but who do you blame when one side refuses to negotiate in good faith and they assume tough negotiation is bad faith? Tough negotiation is not bad faith negotiation. Let's be clear about this. You know, you can't just say, let's make peace and you're going to get everything you want. That, that's not the way things work. Uh, in Maybe in a fairy tale, La La Land, in Alice in Wonderland, that's how it works. That's not how it works in real life. Uh, for example, I you did not get your full two-hour broadcast with me. You had to settle for a one-and-a-half-hour podcast with me, the famous Abhijit Ayer Mitra, young, fit, with a full lock of hair, as opposed to this fat, bald, ugly gay man who's a nobody in the world of podcasting. Okay, What do you do in that case? See, for a negotiation to continue, you have to have carrots and sticks. But it's turned into a government that probably doesn't want the two-state solution out here. So the Palestinians are now stuck. Now, there are several ways of breaking it, breaking the impasse. None of them involves terror. Because terror just brings about more sticks and less carrots. Mm. So it's actually atrocious negotiation. It's atrocious policy planning. 
the Palestinians are straddled with really bad leaders. And you know, for a lot of Israeli hawks, their greatest allies are the Palestinian leadership, both Hamas and Fatah. Uh, because, you know, the uh, uh, the foreign minister of Israel was a guy called Abba Eban. He was very famous for his wisecracks, you know. And he used to say the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> if there's a way to screw up, they will screw up. What is that law called? If things can go wrong, it will go wrong? Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law. So the, this is the uh, uh, Murphy's Law... Geopolitical Murphy law should be called the Abba Eban law, which is <laughs> Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Okay. Mind you, I'm not saying the Israelis are all hunky dory nice. They're tough, nasty bastards negotiating uh, like really tough people. But look, I mean, why are you, you are, you're a, de you're a bureaucracy of a democratically elected state. You are not elected for being Mother Teresa. You're not trained as a bureaucrat for being Mother Teresa. You are trained to protect every single inch and give as little as possible. Okay. It is when one side's strategy keeps succeeding and the other side's strategy, negotiation strategy keeps failing. Whose fault is it? Ultimately, it's a failing side that has to introspect and come up with a new strategy. No, it's been the same strategy over and over again. Uh, no change in the strategy, no, str uh, no change in violence, no change in negotiation. You know you're going to, they know tomorrow some more land, Palestinian land in the West Bank is going to be seized and uh, new settlements are going to come up and they will still refuse to be happy with what they have. So this is a never-ending problem? It's a, it's, it's a never-ending problem. I mean, that's what history also tells us, that it's quite literally, literally never-ending. Yeah. So let's go back to that start of history. Mm. We don't need to get into the deep details oh. of this whole Israel-Palestine historical conflict. Mm -hmm. But let's rush and explain up till World War II. Let's actually take it slightly back to classical antiquity. Uh, because it's it's very important we understand. Actually, let's go back to the Bronze Age. Because it's very important we understand where we're coming from. I'll, I promise I'll keep it very short and That's fine. sweet. Just give a year... Or like a century that you're talking about. Okay, so say about 1177 BC. Okay. 3177 years back, plus 23, no? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so 23 plus 77 is 10, uh, 10 well, uh, 3200 years back. You are some brain, man. Okay. But anyway, go on. No, that's just basic arithmetic, bro. No, I sucked at maths, huh? But ar arithmetic I can do. Thankfully, I'm not that stupid. I was I was like complimenting the retention of data. Achha. But go on. Uh, 1177 BC is the agreed date for the Bronze Age collapse. And one of the things about the Bronze Age collapse was in the Mediterranean, there was this whole bunch of people called the Sea People who destroy civilization after civilization. Ancient Greece was destroyed by them. That is the Greece of... Homer and the Ilia, Iliad and Troy and all of that. Uh, uh, they destroy the Hittite Empire. They destroy all the Levantine states at that point of time. They almost succeed in destroying Egypt, but Egypt is the only civilization at that point that survives. Okay. One of the people out there are called the Peleseth. Okay. We know them by name because of the Egyptian records. Some are called the Shardana, some are called the Peleset. The Shardana, are, we think they came from Sardinia, hence Shardana. And uh, Peleset, we believe, are the Palestinians. And the Bible refers to them as Pelis, or something like that. I'm sorry, I, I'm not very good with 
ancient Hebrew. Not that I know ancient Hebrew, it's just what I've read. Um, and it was culturally very different to the hill tribes that were living there at that time. They had a very different pottery culture. Uh, they used to eat copious quantities of pork. Uh, and you had the hill culture around what is today called Jerusalem, where they did not eat pork, where the pottery culture was also slightly different, but then slowly cross-pollination happened. And the people of the hills ultimately ended up conquering the entire area. Okay, And after it was conquered or some kind of political unity somehow was achieved, uh, there was a split between the north and the south. Before it was the coast and the hills, then it became after uh, sort of cultural unity or conquering or whatever was achieved, there was a north-south split. This is geographical Israel. This is geographical Israel. We're just talking about Israel right now. So if you bring up a map of Israel, you'll see the coast was taken over by the Peleset, the sea people. We think, we think. That there's, a, there's a good deal of evidence to show because this is what the ancient Bible refers to them as and it's also uh, uh, confirmed by what we see in the Egyptian historical record of Ramesses the fourth. Well, uh, Ramesses the third. sorry. All, all these people were not Jewish. Uh, in those days, uh, even the Jews weren't Jewish. Uh, they were just people living up in the hills near Jerusalem. Uh, because see, Judaism itself, we'll discuss how it comes about. Uh, at this point, they were all polytheist pagans. Uh, the Bible will tell you that there was a Moses and Moses around the same time, actually 200 years before this, about 1400 year, uh, uh, BC, uh, he uh, uh, defeated Pharaoh and took Israel from captivity in the land of Egypt and, you know, Ten Commandments and all of that going. He parts the Red Sea and uh, brings them all to Israel. All the anthropological studies show you that the people we call Israelis today have always been in Israel. Ethnically, there's no ethnic variation out there, right? Who do we call Israelis? Because the world assumes that Israelis are actually immigrants from Europe. Yeah, exactly. And you know, that's not true. There has been a significant admixture of European blood, but the fundamental, the core DNA apparently remains the same. So a lot of Israelis, modern Israelis, their families have been living... You can trace the mitochondrial DNA back to... Okay. What uh, was there before? But they weren't Jews. I mean, they, they want you to believe by this time that they were very religious Jews who were worshipping one God. They were worshipping many gods at this point of time. Yahweh, Jehovah, who's the God now, was one of the gods. He had a wife who used to be worshipped and several other gods used to be worshipped. And they were just as polytheist. So it wasn't, you know, uh, uh, Moses goes up to the hill and gets the Ten Commandments and he sees that Saul has built this golden calf and he destroys it. And this never happened. They were worshipping several different gods and goddesses at that point of time, just as many as the as the so-called Palestinians at that, the Peleset, let's call them what they are, Peleset did. And the word in Hebrew at that point of time for enemy, invader, becomes Peleset. Hence, Palestinian. Now, fast forward a bit, about 700 BC, there is a king called Hezekiah. Hezekiah is facing a very dangerous new enemy, which is the Assyrian Empire, nasty empire. I, I think if you Google, they used to take a great pleasure in snuff porn. What Hamas does today, the Assyrian Empire used to do in those days. They literally used to, uh, you know, uh, write on their the walls of their palaces, 
I raped so many women. I plucked so many unborn babies out of, I slit the uh, wombs of so many mothers and plucked out the unborn babies and smashed their heads against the wall. I cut off the penises of all the men and impaled them uh, with po horrific atrocity literature, which they enjoyed. And they used to write copiously about their atrocities. 700 BC, there's the need for political unity. You can't, and this guy, Hezekiah, who's a king of Israel, he somehow thinks that if you have one God, it's very easy to control the masses. Control the masses. And, and remember, by this time, what was Peleset and the proto-Jews have unified and the north and south have separated. The north is called Israel, the south is called Judea or Judah. And the Assyrians first crushed Israel. They then come to cross Judah, whose king is Hezekiah. And he suddenly discovers uh, some lost books from Moses, saying that there should only be one God in things. So he destroys all the statues and temples of all the other gods, and he starts off what we today know as Judaism, which is the one God. Right? Now, what happens from here is very, very important, because the Assyrians crush uh, uh, they crushed Judah like they crushed uh, Israel and they go into Egypt and they crush Egypt and all of that. But this is where Judaism starts, this notion of one God. Uh, it is not the first time an one God has been ideated because about 700 years before this, there was a pharaoh in Egypt called Akhenaten who has also ideated the idea of one God, uh, but one physical God because he thought that would unify Egypt. It did not. Uh, and in Hezekiah's case also, it does not. Judah falls and everybody is killed and exiled. They come back and this now, uh, Judah, sorry, not Israel. Uh, and this keeps happening, that uh, powers keep coming, destroying it, take them away. But the Jewish identity is formed during this period. So these surviving Jews, they become slaves? Basically. They become slaves, they get freed. Uh, they buy their freedom, whatever, and they keep surviving as a community. This is where the collective, the Jewish collective mindset begins. That we are Jews, we belong to this part of the land, this part of the land is us. So the modern definition of a nation state is an imagined identity. And this is where the imagination of the Jewish identity begins, right? It begins quite late. It doesn't begin with Moses and all of that, right? Uh, this is where the actual political cultural identity of Judaism begins. And what makes us different from everybody else is this one God, which as far as they're concerned is an innovation because they didn't remember 700 years before somebody in Egypt tried a similar experiment. Unlike that experiment which failed, this experiment succeeds. At least it holds, right? And it continues and there are constant invasions. The Babylonians come and exile them. Uh, it becomes a satrapy of the Persian Empire. Uh, then it becomes part of the Greek, of the Macedonian, uh, Alexander's Empire, etc., etc. And then the Romans come. Now the Romans, Roman polytheism is very funny. See, they understood. I fundamentally believe that they were atheists in a sense because they understood that politics is very religious. In a way, the way Hezekiah understood religion, that he could play around with the gods to suit a political objective. The Romans, for them, religion was pure politics. You know, you had emperors declare their horses God. Caligula declared his uh, horse incitatus a god. He got the Senate to vote, and so people had to go offer... Uh, <laughs> Puja part, you know, uh, floral tributes and incense sticks and uh, uh, for this horse called Incitatus. Uh, 
it is a kind of a proselytizing polytheism. Now, polytheism is seldom proselytizing, but because the Romans understood that religion is politics, it was a pros it was a kind of a proselytizing uh, uh, religion in that sense. And what happens is they insist you can worship your gods. You want to worship Jehovah at his temple in Jerusalem? Go ahead and do it. But you also need to be worshiping our gods. You have to show that you have integrated into the Roman Empire, which is a huge no-no for the Jews because they've for 700 years now they've been monotheists. All the initial resistance to it within Judea has been overcome. It is now uniformly strictly monotheist. They can't even dream... Uh, Asherah is meant to be the wife of Jehovah in the early part. There is no mention of Asherah or anything like that anymore. It's blasphemy. You will get killed if you talk like that anymore. There is only the one God, Jehovah, who created all of us. His name is even too sacred. They will never use the word Yahweh. They'll say Eloi, Elohim, from where Allah comes. Uh, Lord. Um, so that's where that comes. And um, this puts them in direct conflict with the Roman Empire. Okay. Uh, in 72, there is a huge rebellion which gets crushed by the Romans. A lot of people are killed. And then again, because none of the issues have been sorted out, how, do a, how does a monotheist... A monotheist is very happy being himself and doing his own thing. He's happy with Roman rule. But the Romans insist that you have to keep coming and worshipping. You have to show loyalty by worshipping Caesar. Caesar is God. The emperor is God. You have to worship the emperor. They can't worship the emperor. They can be good citizens without worshipping. I mean, why do you have to worship the emperor? But the Romans required that. So, uh, 72, the crushing by Emperor Vespasian is nasty. They demolish the temple, uh, which is the sacred place, which is supposedly where the Ark of the Covenant that Moses brought, uh, which we know Moses didn't exist and they didn't come from Egypt. They were always native to that particular land. But anyway, let's pretend for a minute. A lot of religion is make-believe, right? How do we know that Moses didn't exist? Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, study that's been done. I'd recommend a book called, uh, you know, Unearthing the Past by a guy called Israel Finkelstein, who, who's done all the mathematics and computation and the archaeology and the DNA and all of that, uh, that these people were always native to where they were, right? Uh, Moses, they didn't come from Egypt. They were not in, uh, 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 this was again one of the inventions of Hezekiah in 700 uh, BC, where, you know, at that time, there were two big enemies. One was the Assyrians, but the other was an Egyptian pharaoh called Nesho, N-E-C-H-O. And he invaded Judah in order to fight the Assyrians, or he was an ally of the Assyrians, I forget which one. And they wanted to create this kind of sob story which showed Egypt as the bad guy. So they concocted this whole story, you know, we actually, we were slaves of the Egyptians and we defeated Pharaoh because they couldn't defeat Pharaoh. Pharaoh defeated them. So they wanted to create this bullshit story about how they defeated Pharaoh. And uh, they, they transposed a fictitious story. They created a fictitious story 700 years back. Uh, well, maybe 700 years back. I don't, I don't know exactly, but about, say, 700 years back. Um, and that is why we know that they've always been native to that particular, uh, uh, that Jerusalem Hill tract, basically. Um, so what happens is, uh, in 72 AD, the temple is destroyed, and uh, Jews are expelled from that area because they're considered a very problematic minority. 
And finally, they start coming back. Uh, they rebuild the temple, et cetera, et cetera, minus the Ark. A lot of people, of course, say the Ark never existed and Hezekiah concocted it, basically. He made up something and he said, ah, ye dekho. you remember, I, I don't know if you were too young, but you remember when uh, Ganesha statue started drinking milk? I was too young. Okay, uh, so you should Google that. Because Ganesha statues drinking milk became a huge thing. When I was about 20 years old, it started coming on TV that across India, people were holding up milk to Ganesha statues and they were drinking it or whatever. I've heard the story though. So, Urban legend. Yeah. And remember, there's a pre-industrial age, which is full of myth and mystery and all of that. Like, oh my God, this was our history. We didn't know about it. And there's this ark, which contains the 10 commandments, which we can't touch or open because God kills anybody who opens it or touches it kind of thing. Uh, concocted. Fine. But see, all foundational myths are just that, they're myths. That doesn't make your identity any less, right? So you have this identity, fine. You know, the only input I have on Jewish culture is Prince of Egypt. It's a movie. Yeah, which is the Moses story. Yeah. yeah which never happened. All my life, that's my image of Judaism. Yeah. And that Old Testament and all that. Right. And our image of ourselves in India is how the uh, uh, Sindhu becomes dry and this king called Bhagiratha uh, starts moving east. He discovers the Ganges. He must have been a king, some tribal chief who came and discovered the Ganges. But they say he did penance and Lord Shiva then opened up from the locks of his hair and the Ganga started flowing down. We know the Ganga doesn't come from Lord Shiva's hair, but we want to believe that it comes from Lord Shiva's hair in Mount Kailash. It is also fictitious, but it is our foundational myth. And I will I, I will go to Mount Kailash and I will worship out there because it is crucial to my identity. I know as a logical person, there is no gentleman sitting on top of that and there is a river coming down. And similarly for the Jew, it, it he believes that there was a Moses he doesn't even have to believe that, but that is his foundational myth, right? So 72 May, after the dispersal and everything, the Romans then start allowing them back. They come back, come back, and they build the temple again. But then another rebellion breaks out in 138 or 148, I forget. And that's called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. And this is a very nasty rebellion. It's actually a lot worse than the 72 AD rebellion. And uh, it's worse for one very simple reason. We have these letters from Bar Kokhba, which show him to be a very nasty character. He's not a nice person. He's not even nice to his own people. Uh, but what complicates things is there's this very famous rabbi at that time called Rabbi Akiva, who declares that this guy is the uh, descendant of David and he's the rightful king of Israel. Now, you have declared a king in opposition to the Roman emperor this time. That's not going to go down well. They will forgive a lot. They will not forgive you over overthrowing the Roman emperor. And so this time the destruction is absolute. It is complete. And they are dispersed to different parts of the empire and they are not allowed back under any circumstances. Okay. So this is where the depopulation happens. But remember, as we've discussed by after 700 BC, the identity has crystallized. It crystallizes over several hundred years. They now have a feeling of what is their home. They are a nation in their mind. They are a common people connected by common thoughts and everything. Of course, wherever they go, they intermarry and things. Tell me one community which doesn't intermarry when it uh, uh, becomes a diaspora. What's happening in the region of geographical Israel? So in the region, it becomes, and this is very important, this is where... The Romans, who were very good at studying the subject population's history, they study their history. And they say, how can we humiliate 
these people as much as we can for the 148 rebellion. And they decide to build a pagan temple where the uh, Jewish temple stood. Uh, and Jerusalem is renamed Elia Capitolina. Uh, there is, a, I think, a, a temple of, I don't know who, Augustus or uh, Zeus, I think that's put up out there instead of where there was meant to be no human form. Uh, it was just meant to be the word of God. Uh, there is a physical statue put up at that exact same spot. It becomes a Roman pagan temple. And the name is changed. It used to be called Judah and Samaria. Now they look back at what is the Jewish word for invader. And it becomes the province of Palestina. And that is the first time in history that it is called Palestine. Right. Now, this province of Palestine, it only exists as, as long as the Romans exist. Because once the Byzantines take over, now the Byzantines, the, the, basically the, the Romans become Christian and the Christians have huge problems with the Jews as we discussed, the blood libel and the killing of Christ and all that nonsense. So they're even more intolerant to the Jews out there. Jerusalem is their sacred spot. Jews can't come out there. They maintain, so uh, the temple becomes a church and all of that, but Jews aren't allowed there. Then it becomes Muslim because the Muslim conquest starts. So 600 uh, AD, uh, the Prophet Muhammad appears, uh, the Arab conquests begin, uh, the uh, Christian church is converted to a uh, mosque, which is that blue, uh, the blue building with the golden thing called the Dome of the Rock and things like that. And here's the problem. The province of Palestine, the Roman province of Palestine was very short-lived because it was split up several times. And if you look at the History of that area, it has never been historically called Palestine except briefly under Roman rule. It was called various different things, you know, the province of Syria, the province of Antioch, uh, the province of Palmyra, this and that. Under the Turks, when they came, it was called the Eyalet. Uh, it was divided up. So there were different divisions of the uh, Ottoman Empire, for example. So it would be, uh, Mustafirat was direct rule from Istanbul, and Eyalet or a Bayer ba uh, Beylik was kind of a governor appointed. It was Hama, Aleppo, the Mustafirat of Jerusalem, or as they call it Al-Quds and things, there was never called Palestine, even a Palestinian identity. I, I challenge anybody viewing this to tell me one Arab leader before the 20th century who's been identified as Palestinian. You know, we know, for example, Salahuddin, uh, the great hero uh, of the Crusades and whatever, Salahuddin Ayubi was a Kurd. He was a Kurdish. Uh, we know, uh, and Salahuddin is very big in Anglophone literature, but the big guy in Arab literature is a guy called Baibars, Kutbuddin Baibars Bandukdari, uh, apparently the first Arab to own a gun, hence Bandukdari, apparently. Um, this guy uh, is a Turk. He isn't even an Arab. And this is where we need to understand there is a Palestinian story. Again, you remember how we discussed there's a lot of BS that comes out. They will tell you that Israelis aren't native. They've all become European or they're Turks because there was a Turkish... Khanit in the northern Crimea, which became Jew, Jewish. And these are all essentially Ukrainians who have come down to uh, Ukrainian Turks, uh, Ukrainian Turkish admixture who have come down. They're not native Arabs. But guess what? The native Arabs aren't native Arabs either. Because the one thing about Islam is only 200 year, years of the 1,400 years of Islam are Arab. The remaining 1,200 years of Muslim history 
are Turkish history, Turkic history, not Turkish, Turkic, mm. which is to say the Kyrgyz, the uh, um, the Uzbeks, the Turkmen's, and all of those Central Asian tribes. You'll have to explain this a little more. Okay. Because, uh, because, uh, I, is, are you talking about power? I'm talking about power. Okay. Power, but also migration. Uh, you'll have to explain this a okay. lot. Uh, we'll have to go a lot into... Uh, Muslim history for this. So see, when uh, the Prophet dies, uh, there are four or five caliphs who succeed him. They're called the Rashidun Caliphs, which are the righteous caliphs. The last of them is uh, Ali, Imam Ali. Uh, and that is where the Shia-Sunni split happens. His succession is opposed by a guy called Muwayya, who is the governor of some big province. And ultimately, he succeeds in disempowering Ali and becoming the ruler and everything. And finally, uh, Ali's son, Hussein, and everybody are killed. And this is where the Shia Sunni happens because the followers of Ali and Hussein become Shias. The people who stay with Muwayya become uh, uh, Sunnis. And the uh, Muwayya's caliphate is called the Umayyad Caliphate. And this lasts for about 100, 200, 100 odd years. I think even less, maybe 90 years. It's a very racist caliphate because there were special privileges for Arabs born in Makkah, Medina and the tribes, whereas everybody else was considered lesser and they had to pay uh, tax. And at this time, they did not want to convert people. They did not want to convert people because they wanted extraction. The jazia was a tax that had to be paid by non-Muslims. If you convert, what happens is you have to be given entry because the Prophet Muhammad expressly says that all Muslims are equal. So they don't want you to be equal. They want tribal loyalty to be paramount. We are Arabs, we are superior, you are the local natives, you are inferior. And I can assure you, most of the population of what is today called Israel or Palestine at that point of time did not come from Saudi Arabia. So they're not even Arabs to begin with, okay? They are natives who probably lived around there. But again, there is significant admixture of Arabs into the bloodstock. And then what happens is because of these racist policies a lot of the provinces get very upset because people have converted to Islam and they are still have to pay the jazia, which is the non-Muslim, the special tax for non-Muslims. They also have to do military service because the jazia was in lieu of military service. They wouldn't trust a non-Muslim to serve and therefore jazia was your tax for in lieu of military service. So they had, they had become Muslim. They had to do military service and they had to pay the tax for non-Muslims. And so it leads to something called the Abbasid revolt, which becomes the Abbasid Caliphate, which is the famous Harun al-Rashid ultimately, all of that thing. But the Abbasid revolt starts in Persia, is masterminded by Persians, but a lot of Turks. Because at this point, there is a concept in Iran, what is today modern day Iran, of Iran and Turan. Iran is Iran, Turan is what are the Turkic lands. And a lot of the troops of the uh, Abbasid revolt are actually Turks. And this begins, they are slave soldiers. Uh, they are overwhelmingly Turks. And this begins an era of Turkish domination. Ultimately, after about another 100, 200 years, the Turks become the ruling class in literally every single Arab country that you know today. Okay, uh, In Syria, in uh, Palestine, in Lebanon, in uh, what is today called Turkey, in Iran, in Iraq, in India, in, in, India, in Egypt, uh, everywhere. Uh, remember, India was 
Islamicized by the Turks. It wasn't Islamicized by the Arabs, right? Uh, in Egypt, even in North Africa, they become uh, the Turks become the ruling class. All the great crusader lords, not one of them was Arab. They were all Turks. Okay, so when you're saying Turks, you're referencing the people from the geographical region from of modern Central day. Asia. Let's let's just call them. They were all Central Asians, not just Turkey. Not just Turkey. Turkey okay. is named Turkey after the the Turks. The Turks of Turkey originally came from Central Asia. Gotcha. These are all Mongoloid tribes from Central Asia that come here. But if you go to Turkey today, they don't look even remotely Mongol, right? Why is that? And yet they speak a sort of Mongol-related language, a Turco-Mongol language. Why? Because they came, they conquered, you know, like Caesar said, I came, I saw, I conquered, Veni, Vidi, Vici. Uh, they do that. They are the ruling class. They intermarry. They mix with the local population. It's a very heterogeneous society, which is what all societies are. Even Indians are an extremely heterogeneous society. So there's a huge amount of Turkish blood in uh, uh, the Levantine uh, blood. There's a huge amount of uh, Arab admixture in the blood. There's a whole amount of local, you know, uh, uh, endogamous societies mixing their blood out there. So if you're going to say the Jews are actually, you know, Ukraino-Turks, Buddy, guess what? You're also just as much Ukraine or Turks because there were a lot of those people coming there and ruling over you for 1,200 years. The Ottoman Empire was a Central Asian empire, which didn't look Central Asian anymore because they married into all the local populations and things like that. And this entire period, for 1,400 years almost, there is no political entity called Palestine. There is no king of Palestine. There has never been a king of Palestine. There has never been a a ruler of Palestine per se, because it was variously called different province names by different things. It wasn't. The first mention of Palestine. Now let's fast forward to the 20th century, say about 1860 when the Tanzimat reforms happened. I'm not going to go into the Tanzimat reforms, but they're the governmental reforms of the Ottoman Empire, because at this time, the Ottomans have ruled that area for about 300 years. Uh, there is no such thing as a Syrian identity, there is no such thing as a Lebanese identity. There is no such thing as a Jordanian identity. There is no such thing as a Saudi identity. There is no such thing as a, uh, a Palestinian identity. There is an Egyptian identity. Because Egypt always retained a memory of being separate. It was always considered the pro- It was always named the province of Egypt. It was always mentally, they always thought of themselves as Egyptian. Okay. So what happens is uh, the Ottomans... Uh, it's split up into the Mustafirat of Al-Quds, which is under direct rule, which is to say Jerusalem under direct rule from the Ottoman Empire. And the rest are Hama, the province of Hama, the province of Aleppo, the province of uh, Lebanon, the province of, they did create a province of Lebanon. Uh, not the Lebanese considered themselves Lebanon. If you look at that Lebanon, it's actually different from the Lebanon we know today. Thoras overlap, a little bit of overlap, but not much. Um, and you have this uh, sort of... Uh, 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 there is no Jordan even at this point of time. There is no name called Jordan. Uh, Jordan, incidentally, in Arabic is the same as Urdu. It's Al-Urdun, the camps, you know, the language of the camps, the camps, uh, so Al-Urdun, uh, Jordan. Um, and what ends up happening is this reformed Ottoman Empire joins the Second World War as an ally of Germany, uh, the First World War, sorry, as an ally of Germany. And we know in the First World War, Germany, Austria-Hungary, there were three allies at that time. Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire, they are crushed. And the Ottoman Empire is divided up. And this is the first time in 2000 years that Palestine is renamed Palestine. 
because of roman influence from ancient times because of roman influence from ancient times because italy was on the winning side uh because uh well in this case it was britain and france on the winning side which side was italy on in world war 1 in world war 1 they were part of the allies as well they were with britain and but but this was a it was the ottomans were on the losing side so european pride basically made uh them the winning side name this section as palestine they didn't intentionally name it palestine so i'll tell you how this comes about now they have decided at this point that turkey is going to be the ottoman empire is going to be reduced to the what we know as the modern state of turkey today okay and there is a lot of trouble going on there because turkey is fighting with the greeks and there's a whole sort of population exchange and all of that happening but this part the levant is completely separated and the europeans have their own idea of nation state and things like that so they decide to create four separate countries if you want to really call it that but uh essentially provinces they call it mandates they set up something called the league of nations which is the precursor of the un and they call these mandates and what happens is the north which is lebanon and syria go to france uh france takes this old term lebanon and decides to carve an artificial christian majority out of syria which is overwhelmingly muslim okay so lebanon is as artificial a creation as say a pakistan a muslim minority carved out of india called pakistan or a oil minority carved out of iraq called kuwait okay and the british get the southern half of the levant which is jordan and modern day jordan and israel now the remember all modern european states uh they consider latin to be the language of learning at this point this is still classical education like you know i mean you you've been to america and uh, uh britain and things why is it that all public buildings are latin because they love to see themselves as you know roman empire everything is back to roman empire what did the romans call this place palestine we're going to call it palestine again and this is where this palestine is created now the problem is this is where the palestinian identity comes okay that the notion that there is a palestine out here and it is a conference called the san remo conference which is where these mandates are decided the french mandate of syria and lebanon the british mandate of uh, jordan and palestine and that is where they decide to create new countries and new provinces like they did like you know uh, like 90% of the borders in africa are apparently straight lines because they were carved by europeans on a map and that is why uh, these lines are also carved up they're Uh, geography there's the jordan river running here so this is jordan and this is trans jordan so the trans jordan becomes palestine and etc etc syria has long straight borders if you actually go to the map and check iraq and syria have long straight borders iraq and saudi arabia have long straight borders who created all of these the colonial powers white so boys white boys exactly now during this period what has been happening is from the 1860s onwards there's a chap called theodor herzl in europe there has been a slow increase of they feel an increase of antisemitism and there's an affair called the dreyfus affair who's a french army officer who scapegoated for a crime he did not commit and they all see this as antisemitism so a sort of jewish 
a need. They felt that anti-Semitism was over in Europe because it had already been a hundred years since the emancipation of Jews, where they were not allowed, required to live in ghettos. They could find professions other than money lending, etc., etc., etc. Let's go back slightly a little bit to Jewish history now. Jewish history now. So while the Ottoman Empire was ruling over hmm. the Gulf, effectively the Gulf, uh, are there Jewish people in the Gulf? Or there are some in uh, modern-day Israel. There are some Jewish people. Remember, uh, the Byzantines would not let back the Jewish diaspora. The uh, uh, the Arabs absolutely would not let back the Jewish diaspora. The Turkic rulers of that place would not let back the Jewish diaspora because by this time Jerusalem is holy to the Muslims as well because it is where the Prophet Muhammad ascended to heaven on the white horse, right, on the white-winged horse and things like that. So uh, nobody is willing to let them back. Uh, but then in uh, because of... An, and by this time, parallel in Europe, by the 1700s, mid-1700s, there's an end of anti-Semitism in Europe because it's industrializing. You need the core component of industrialization is capital. Who has the capital? The Jews because they have money, because they were the only people who were exempt from Christian and Muslim money lending laws. And so they built up banking. And so they're funding this. And so, you know, there is a liberalization that happens because everybody, people are no longer focused on religion. They're focused on making lives better. So there's an emancipation of Jews. And so 100 years after that, there is another spike in anti-Semitism, which then leads people like Theodor Herzl. And because it's accelerated by the Dreyfus affair further down the line, uh, they feel the need for Israel. They keep petitioning all the governments saying, look, we're giving you so much capital, so much finance. This is where we originally came from. Please build our home back there originally came from that land up till the point where that Assyrian empire that you spoke about went and tormented them and basically threw them all over the world threw them all over but mainly the Romans threw them all over the world in 148 okay. uh, AD so there was a phase in 148 AD around that time where these guys got blown out of that land basically yeah. Okay. That's how some of them came to India as well. Some of them came to India at that point of time as well. They came in two phases in 72 AD and then in 148. Now, from that timeline onwards. I think it was 148. Basically, the Bar Kokhba rebellion, whenever that is. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm very good no, with sequences. I'm not good with dates, but ar uh, around about that time. Um. So literally up to 1945, which mm. is the end of World War II, the entire Jewish population... Some of them are in modern-day Israel. In modern-day Israel in small numbers. Got it. Okay. But the rest of them are in Europe and all over the world. Europe, all over the world. Lots of them are in Arab countries, in Egypt, in Yemen, lots in Baghdad. In fact, the third wave of immigration in, into India, the Sassoons, you have the Sassoon Library and the Sassoon Docks not far from where we are right now, where Baghdadi Jews who moved to India. Got it. Okay. And it's part of that family that created Vidal Sassoon, you know, the hair products. Mm -hmm. I don't have hair, so I don't use it, but you might have used Vidal Sassoon hair products. Same family, apparently. Okay. Uh, and um, so there's a Bombay connection to this as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, Bombay has its own uh, Jewish. Jewish. Yeah. And there's the lovely synagogue in uh, Kalagora. Yeah. Um, I have an uncle of mine who stays in America. He stayed in America for a very long time. I asked him, what are Jewish people like? He's like, they're a lot like white Marwadis. Ooh. That's effectively how they that community is. Very religious, very old school, very family oriented, very, 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 very business oriented. Very business oriented. And unfortunately for me at least, uh, at least the East Coast uh, Jews, very woke. Very woke. Uh, 
I think that's going to change after all of this. But anyway, very woke. I'm I'm talking about traditionally. Traditionally, yeah. In terms of they they they're typically like Indians. You know, there's a reason we have the Hindu phenomenon of lots of Hindus marrying lots of Jews because they're all mamas boys and mamas girls. Gotcha. Okay. okay. Uh, the parents interfere a lot. Like uh, you know, a Jewish family uh, is completely compatible with an Indian family. Mummy keeps poking her nose into everything. Why are you dressed like that? You're going to bring shame upon the family. Did I did I bring you up to dress like this? You tell me how are you appearing in a podcast in a black t-shirt and uh, pants like this? Is this the way I brought you up? Is this your father? Your father, you know, he used to he, he his father didn't look after. Him. <laughs> he was sitting by the light on the roadside and he used to study there. <laughs> and you know, he used to go every day to his fa- uh, to his factory work. He used to work on the factory floor wearing a full three-piece suit. and look at you you ungrateful child you are sitting here and doing all of this this is what indian mothers do this is also the stereotype of the jewish mother you implant hustle into the kid basically right uh it's it's a very compatible community with indians god especially with uh, uh and you know i use the term indians not hindus so much and especially east Co- uh, sorry west coast indians which is gujus marwadis uh, all the mercantile communities similar totally similar as in insane if you if uh, some jews got a tan they could and wore a sari they could easily pass off in their mannerisms as gujus and marwadis and it doesn't matter hindu muslim same uh, uh, this thing right so all those guju marwadi the all the west coast indian stereotypes just go and apply it out there mm. um of course there's a bit of hyperbole and exaggeration with stereotyping but <laughs> you know it's a fun stereotype and you know there is always a kind of a root There is some truth always in yeah. a stereotype of some kind. Yeah, hundred percent. So these guys retained this kind of very peculiar culture over that entire phase of being thrown out of Israel and the Gulf. Right, and because they were always ostracized for either killing the god or lending money, they always ghettoed around and maintained that culture. they did not get absorbed like say if you turn muslim it doesn't matter if you're turk or arab or uh, native greco byzantine living in palestine you would then intermarry but because they were always seen as these outsiders unclean people who either killed our god or who uh, lent money that mixing didn't happen so they always maintained that cultural identity and they maintained contacts with every other jewish community around in other countries in other countries okay always okay always uh, and they got rich yes because they were the only people who were allowed to do banking okay uh, a good christian and a good muslim do not do banking so they funded the entire industrial revolution in europe correct okay and now we're at world war 1 and now we're at world war 1 okay okay uh, and they have uh, now they have accumulated a significant amount of power without being pogromed every time because you know you can't be borrowing capital for industrialization and then killing off your lender because then nobody's going to lend money to you anymore because what happened to the guy before will happen to you you can't do that the crucial element of industrialization is a stable regulatory and security environment and realizing that it wasn't out of the goodness of the heart of their hearts that they stopped pogroming and killing jews and emancipated the jews it was a business necessity they did the jews no favors okay it wasn't that they suddenly loved the jews or anything like that there used to be vicious uh, 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 anti-semitism jew phobia whatever you want to call it 
it was just not translated into pogroms and things like that. But a set of anti-Semitic events and ultimately leading up to the Dreyfus affair in France convinced them that anti-Semitism was real and we need to go back to our original homeland. Now, World War I ends, Ottoman Empire is defeated, uh, Ottoman Levant, which includes modern-day Israel, is partitioned. And the same San Remo conference that for the first time reestablishes a state called Palestine, or rather a province called, a mandate called Palestine, also accepts something called the Balfour Declaration, which is the right of the Jews to return to their homeland. So here's the problem. When you call Israel a colonial project, sure, except it was the same colonial project that created Palestine that also accepted the right of the Jews to return. Either both are illegal or both are legal. You can't just pick and choose what you want, right? Now, in line with that, from the 20s to the 30s, there is significant Jewish immigration from Europe to Palestine, okay, to mandatory, we call it mandatory Palestine because it was given as a mandate to the British. It causes trouble out there because the Jews are bringing in capital and they're turning the desert green. They're getting into farming, they're setting up jobs, they're setting up factories, they're setting up things. So when the Peel report comes out in the 30s, it shows that Jewish immigration is leading to an economic boom in the region, but because it threatens all the old feudal power structures who don't want, because the moment a guy has a job to go to, he isn't going to come fight for you, he isn't going to pay his taxes to you, uh, because what are you providing? The state provides everything for you because it's a modern state. Uh, you're paying taxes to the British, you're not getting money. Uh, this guy is providing you with jobs, so you're not even doing salam to him anymore. And, you know, you're basically treating him like, who the hell are you, man? Like, you're just a big, your poop doesn't smell of roses. Both our poops smell the same. Who the hell are you? This is what industrialization does. It's a great equalizer, right? It leads to a lot of social tension, a lot of rioting, and a lot of both-way rioting. Everybody's killing everybody else kind of thing. Uh... But what finally happens is, uh, it, and this state continues for 20 years, between 1920, the San Remo Conference, to 1939-40 when uh, the World War reaches this area. And of course, we know what Hitler did to the Jews and things like that. Um, I'm not going to go over that because that also, the Holocaust itself has a kind of a, a Jordanian history to it because it was the, uh, uh, for a long time, the Nazis were negotiating to settle uh, they they hated Jews. They did not want Jews in Germany. Want, they wanted Jews out of Germany and any territory they conquered. And they wanted to kick the Jews out and hopefully settle them down in Palestine. Okay. Okay. And this is religious reasons? Because Hitler hates Jews. They, they are dirty, oh. uh, lower human beings, etc., etc., etc. I mean... You know what Hitler thought. I, I think the audience generally knows what Hitler thought about. Wait, we're uh, just skipping Jews. the World War II section, assuming. No, the we're, we're compressing the World War II section okay. because it's mostly the murder of Jews in this particular case. Okay. So what happens is it is the Mufti of Jerusalem who goes to Hitler and he doesn't want now he's alarmed. Hitler doesn't like Jews, but he wants to export them to my place, as it is, these Jews have come and they're providing jobs and industrial development and this thing, and it's completely upsetting the apple cart for me. I don't want them, you don't want them, kill them. Right? And people don't realize this guy, the Mufti of Jerusalem, was a rock star uh, in Nazi Germany. They loved him. 
he actually recruited uh, lots of Bosnian Muslims to fight for the German army and things like that. Not just any German army, SS Waffen, crack, psychotic, sadistic, sick troops that used to go around doing a lot of really sick shit. And this is a power equation. Remember, it's not, and at this time, there is no Palestinian identity. Okay, this guy is declared the king of the Arabs. He's not even declared the king of Jordan or the king of Palestine or whatever. He fancies himself the king of the Arabs. Give some tiny context on him. Um, just a, he claims to be a descendant of the prophet. Uh, he is the chief uh, 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 prayer reader or a chief scholar of uh, Jerusalem. And he declares, and he's therefore a focal point for the Muslim community out there. And the Muslim community out there still hasn't gotten down to the fact that they've been split into uh, French Lebanon, uh, French Syria, British Jordan, and British Palestine. Because as far as they're concerned, this was all used to be one Ottoman Empire. And these it, it was basically in an Indian context. This was like moving between Bihar and Madhya Pradesh and Maharashtra. Mm. Okay. okay. In an American context, it was like going from Connecticut to Maine to maybe New York or New Jersey or whatever. I, I'm sorry, I'm not very good on uh, East Coast uh, geography. <laughs> but uh, Or... Uh, uh, right, mm. so it it was kind of like that. Or in Britain, it was traveling between different counties. Um, but suddenly, if India were to break up, suddenly you go from going from Bihar state to Madhya Pradesh state to Maharashtra state, it suddenly becomes you're going from the People's Democratic Republic of Bihar to the Kingdom of Madhya Pradesh to the Empire of Maharashtra, all of which require passport controls and breakdown trade and all of that. Okay. Now, will the identity form so quickly? Of course not. So remember, the Palestinian identity mentally and physically is created sometime after the physical legal creation of a Jewish identity, uh, a, a Jewish promise. It is created simultaneously. The physical entity is created simultaneously with the promise of Jewish migration. Okay. So either both are legal or both are illegal. Anyway, fast forward to World War II. It is in this context that this uh, Mufti of Jerusalem becomes very popular. Now, he wants parts of San Remo. He does not want all of the San Remo agreement. He does, certainly does not want more Jews. He does not want his feudal power over his, uh, what he presumes is going to be his future empire broken. So he's like, yo, buddy Hitler, why don't you just kill them? You know, just kill, kill two birds with one stone. Uh, just get them off. I mean, he didn't say gas them off, but he's like, don't send them here. You're creating problems for me. And he shows his worth by recruiting Bosniak Muslim soldiers for the Waffen SS. So he's actually giving tangible returns to uh, Hitler. Now, again, Germany gets defeated. Hitler gets defeated. And what do you have out here? Do you have a guy who literally collaborated with Hitler who is representing the Arab cause, and now they need to clearly separate. All colonial rule comes to an end at the end of World War II, within about 10, 15 years of World War II, sometimes almost immediately after World War II. And just the same way India gets independence, this place is also earmarked for independence, in keeping with the mandates that they had drawn up in the 1920s. Now, because from the 1920s to the 1940s, Jewish migration has happened, it is the same legality. The Jewish migration is as legal as the creation of a mandatory Palestine. Okay, remember this. There is a certain Jewish coastal majority. And just like they decide to partition India and Pakistan because there is a certain 
majority in the East and a certain majority in the West of Muslims, and it should be partitioned. They decided on a partition of Palestine. There is a huge chunk of the South, which is a desert, which is uh, completely, almost completely uninhabited. If you go to the Negev, you'll see it is virtually uninhabitable. It is one of the driest parts of the desert, um, of the uh, larger Arabian desert. This is also given and it is meant to be two separate states. It is meant to be Palestine, which is a Muslim majority. It is meant to be Israel, which is the local, essentially India-Pakistan. India-Pakistan repeated all over again. Okay, Except Jerusalem, which is meant to be an international mandate. So it becomes an international city. That, that's the UN partition plan out here. Again, the UN votes on it. So the San Remo conference, perfectly legal. I mean, you may not like it. But it is a legal, it is an accepted instrument of international law. And here again, you have another accepted instrument of international law, which is the UN that creates these two states. All the Arab states refuse to accept it and they invade it the very day it is declared independent. Okay. They refuse to accept a Jewish state in any form or way. Uh, ultimately, it's a year of fighting which the Jews win and they establish the state of Israel. It's a moth-eaten Israel, but it more or less conforms to the UN partition plan, pretty much. Uh, some less, some more maybe, but more or less conforms to it. They don't want to let the state live in peace. So every day there are terror attacks, okay? Because nobody wants to recognize this new country called Israel. Uh, they, they constantly, and these are vicious, nasty terror attacks, killing people, and the Israelis respond in kind sometimes, going in, mostly it's a military response, but sometimes there are massacres of Palestinian, uh, what is now called the Palestinian identity. Uh, and this identity is literally, the identity of a Palestine is literally created overnight at this point. Uh, like I said, there is no king of Palestine. Show me somebody who used the title king of Palestine. Qutbuddin Baibas Bandukdari was known as a Turk. Uh, Salahuddin Ayubi was known as a Kurd. Show me somebody from Muslim history who was known before Yasser Arafat, who was known as a Palestinian leader. So what or who was behind this Palestinian identity? Was it the rest of the Arab world saying that, hey, you guys there? Fight, fight with the, the local yeah, Jews. Yeah, but see, that doesn't make it any less. Because see, to... to if I decide to identify as a nation, a nation is an imagined identity, right? Yes. So it is, that doesn't reduce the validity of Palestine. If you believe you're a Palestinian, you are a Palestinian. In fact, you know, the Turkish constitution, because, you know, Turks are no longer the Central Asian Turco-Mongols with slanty eyes. Uh, I mean, Turks look like Greeks. You can't really tell the difference between a Turk and a Greek and a Bulgar and a uh, Arab technically. Uh, the Turkish definition of who is a Turk is, do you feel Turkish? Then you're a Turk. Okay. So I imagine myself to be a Palestinian. Therefore, I am a Palestinian. And there's a perfectly legitimate uh, foundational myth of the Palestinian state. Every state is created on a foundational myth. I'm not, uh, yeah. I mean, Egypt is also a foundational myth. India is also a foundational myth. Russia is a foundational myth. America is a foundational myth. Everybody is. And there is a certain criteria for being Russian, being Indian, being uh, whatever, it varies. Some is linguistic, some is blood, some is ethnicity, some is religion. It doesn't diminish anything. So sure, there is a Palestinian identity that is now created. Point being, if you claim that Israel is a colonial construct, Israel being there is not the same as the British being here. Because Palestine is just as colonial as Israel is. So, you know, if one is legal, the other is also legal. Mm. Okay. Now, 
This is up to the 1940s and the creation of Israel. They don't give Israel peace. So finally what happens is uh, you, you constantly have wars and terror attacks and whatnot constantly happening out there. In the 67 war, uh, Israel crushes all its Arab neighbors very, very, very decisively. Right? It destroys them, as it destroys them insanely. It captures the entire West Bank. You know, before that, the West Bank was annexed by Jordan because the Jordanian king had great uh, uh, ambitions to kick all the Jews into the sea and take over, reunite Transjordan and Cisjordan. Uh, he realizes it's foolish because all his troops get killed off, his tanks are destroyed, his entire air force is destroyed, and the whole of the West Bank of the Jordan River is captured and uh, uh, occupied by Israel, just like the Gaza Strip is now. Okay, And this is the second part of the Palestinian identity, because Gaza, initially they saw it as Egyptian. West Bank was initially seen as Jordanian, and they wanted to overtake the entire thing. Everybody was in, in it for more land for themselves. They didn't want an independent Palestine, really. None of them wanted it. They parrot all of this out because they have, it has to kind of stick to the UN partition plan. They didn't... Egypt wanted to be Egyptian, uh, Jordan wanted to be Jordanian, and you want proof of this is something called the United Arab Republic. Have you heard of the United Arab Republic? I think everybody's forgotten. So, you know, for a brief period, Egypt and Syria decide to unite under Nasser. And the Syrian-Egyptian Union in the 60s was called the Uni 1960s, was called the United Arab Republic. It was a disaster because it became colonial rule of Syria by Egypt. And ultimately, there was an officer's coup where they kicked out all the Egyptians and Syria became independent again. <laughs> so Nasser was essentially colonizing Syria in a way, which is exactly what he wanted to do with Palestine as well. No? He didn't want an independent Palestine or anything like that. Ultimately, I think people have forgotten because we no longer live in the 60s. People have forgotten that, you know, in many ways, what Iran is to the Western world today as a very uh, criminal state... It isn't, but anyway, as a criminal state that wants to destroy everything, Nasser and Egypt were considered that problem state at that point of time. He wanted to overthrow every single Arab monarchy. He wanted to conquer the entire Arab world, and he wanted to recreate some uh, Arab, uh, pan-Arabist republic. It was called the pan-Arab movement and things like that. So this was always there. Never forget that. People, you know, people conveniently forget history. The Palestinian ability to forget their own history is truly remarkable. Um, so what ends up happening now is you, Jordan and Egypt, after the 73 war and the peace, mentally decide we have already created a Palestine, Palestinian identity to further our territorial ambitions, which are not going to happen. We can't crush Israel anymore. So there has to be a Palestinian state now. What is that Palestinian state going to be? It's going to be the West Bank plus Gaza. Okay? And this is the evolution of that movement. Now, this independence could have been achieved even then. Because if you talk to Israeli leaders in 1967, after the victory of 1967, they always viewed these as bargaining chips. They did want the whole of Jerusalem, as in they did want to annex certain parts of the land, but they were always viewed as bargaining chips. And that is where the modern history starts off from. So you see, there is no uh, colonial project here. There is no legality or illegality. If, if anything is illegal, everything is illegal. If something is legal, everything is legal. Israel has as much of a right to exist as Palestine, and Palestine does have a right to exist. The problem is 
you negotiate in good faith. You can't use terror attacks. You can't be claiming peace in English and claiming war in Arabic. You can't be ordering attacks on uh, buses in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. And when the Israelis have demonstrated goodwill to you over and over again, in 79, they withdraw from the entire Sinai. In 2005, they withdraw from the whole of uh, Gaza. You can't keep saying, oh, but you keep seizing land. Yes, you. it's like we spoke about negotiations. So this is where it stands. Now, again, fast forward to what has happened this last week. They want to justify this entire history and say that this history gives me the right to go into Israel, kill 1,400 people, rape and torture several of these people, mostly non-combatants. There were only 200 combatants, uh, 250 combatants. The remaining 1,150 or whatever were all non-combatants, several children. Uh, and you don't believe that? Go check out the Hamas channel. I'm, I'm not saying believe the Jews. Just go check out Hamas channel. On go, go check out the yeah the Telegram uh, Al Qassam Brigade's channel. They themselves are celebrating it, and if they've deleted the videos from that channel, you know um, I don't want you on my Telegram, but I, I don't want to get bombarded with messages. But um, uh, ask your friends; I'm sure they'll be happy to supply it with you. Um, that is where we stand. You can't justify atrocities in the name of the past. Okay. Killing, torturing, raping people is wrong, period. Okay? Israel has a right to exist. Israel is not the missionaries of charity. They are not Mother Teresa. Even though Mother Teresa wears the colors of Israel, blue and white, she is not Israel and Israel is not Mother Teresa. Uh, they don't have to give up their national interest for your ego. They can bargain very hard at the negotiating table any the bureaucrats of any democratic states have to be hard bastards otherwise you're not being paid properly and you're essentially committing treason to your country you can't get carried away with airy fairy notions on the negotiating table okay um one of the arguments that pro palestine civilians have all over the world is that even the hamas is made out of palestinians who grew up in a very violent, very atrocity-struck land. Mm. They were basically bullied by the Jews throughout their life and that's what's forced them into a into whatever they're doing right now. Mm. Uh, do, you, do you also sense that narrative? I get a lot of that narrative and I'll tell you why that's wrong. Okay? Um, because I've, I, I've been to Israel some 14, 15 times now. Okay, uh, I've been to the West Bank some seven, eight times at least. I've been to Gaza for about 10 days. Uh, sure, 10 days isn't enough, but trust me, for one quarter of Delhi, I think you can cover a lot of, at least South Delhi you can cover in, or South Sobo, as you chaps call it here in Bombay, you can cover in 10 days, right? Um, not anthropologically or sociologically, sure, but you get a sense of the place. Sure, you don't understand everything, but you get a sense of the place. Is there brutalization? Is there the humiliation of occupation? Is there troubles? Yes. Have you ever thought why? You can't go around killing people who are offering you jobs. In fact, this particular attack on the 7th and 8th of September, it was so precise. The Hamas terrorists knew exactly where to go and who to kill. 
Why? Because there were Gazans who were given jobs out there, agricultural and industrial jobs, who used to go back every evening to Gaza and provide intelligence of who, what, where, how to Hamas. And that is how they were able to plan this to absolute perfection. Okay? Somebody is giving you a job and you essentially plan home, invade them, rape and kill their daughter, torture, rape, kill their daughter. What exactly are they meant to do to you? You know, at some point you have to cut off. Israel is a country that runs internally by the rule of laws. Okay. And this is where there is a need for Gandhism. I can tell you honestly, for all the right-wing, ultra-right-wing uh, uh, nasty Jews who absolutely don't want uh, a Palestinian state or whatever, if the Palestinians adopted civil disobedience and non-violence, that would be their nightmare come true. The problem is... Hamas and people like Hamas are the best friends of Jewish extremists. There is a reason for Jewish extremists to believe in whatever they believe in. Exactly. Mm. Okay. These two are completely one set. The worst fears on the Jewish side are validated by Hamas. This is why I say Hamas, supporting Hamas, refusing to condemn Hamas is the most Islamophobic thing you can do because at least Israel is doing it to somebody else. These people are doing it to their own people. These guys are next level nasty. Uh, there's really no words to describe these people. They're the most sadistic, sick, horrible people you can imagine who use their own captive population as human shields. And you won't say this on social media. Why? See, for a Muslim, he should be much more worried about a Muslim oppressing a Muslim than an outsider oppressing a Muslim. Assume I'm wrong. That would be my priority. But say you're more, you'll deal with the Israeli first and then ye ghar ka mamla hai. This is my house. That is the outsider. So let me deal with Israel first and then I'll set my house in order. But what when it is your house that is enabling the other person to do to you what you hate the most? That this guy, who's your brother, is literally, this is the house invader called Israel, is literally opening the door and by shooting at him, justifying him coming in and shooting your entire family down. So, you know, there is, I find so much escapism and complete unwillingness to introspect. Amongst the Palestinians, a lot of it is fear-driven. Like with Indian Muslims, you know, a lot of it is fear-driven. Even about internal issues, a lot of it is fear-driven. You saw the Pew poll that, you know, showed you that Indian Muslims consider themselves the least uh, oppressed of all Muslims surveyed in the world. Hmm? Uh, and yet, if you go by the uh, Western press, India is just Nazi Germany waiting to happen and what happened to the Jews there is going to happen to uh, Muslims out here. And they dare not open their mouths because the Sunni community is the majority community and it's still a very feudal backward community. The Shias are almost at the top of the income ladder. The Sunnis are almost at the bottom of the income ladder. 
Palestine doesn't really have Shias, it's Sunnis. It's still an unmodernized, extremely feudal, extremely violent, criminalized thug polity, which terrorizes its own people into submission. Um, they can't really talk. There is a significant amount of radicalization and compounding all of this is the demography. You see, children are bred in Palestine for political reasons. To swamp the Jews, because there are about five, six million Jews, and they want a numerical majority, at which point they will demand one unified state where Muslims are in a majority. And the second reason that children are bred is to be used as human shields, which is why 44% of Gaza today is children under the age of 14. So the level of human shielding, this is not just random human shielding. This is planned, disgusting, sick, psychotic, planned human shielding. Which results into a powerful PR strategy on modern day social media in 2023. Yeah, because we've become a society of feelings. You know, uh, emotions matter. Op and this is wokery. A polarized society of feelings. Yeah. Uh, if you have a brain, you will understand the nuances to it. The problem is, you know, when it comes to politics and especially a convoluted... I mean, it's taken us, what, almost two hours to explain all of this, Longer. right? And probably I haven't done... I probably haven't done a good job even there. Um so imagine how difficult it is. There, there are literally thousands of PhDs that have been done on this. Uh, and you could read all of them and you still won't get around to understanding the situation. So how do you expect the ordinary person to comprehend this? Accumulate as much information as you can from both sides. And here's the problem. So many people have a confirmation bias. You only want to hear what you want to hear and not what the other side wants to wants you to hear. You know, I saw something very strange in my Israeli and my Palestinian WhatsApp groups. The Palestinian WhatsApp groups were actually circulating the Hamas Telegram videos. The Israeli WhatsApp group, I posted one and I got kicked out of a group because they, we don't want to see this shit. This snuff porn, this is disgusting. And I've been kicked out permanently from that group. The Palestinian groups want to see this. It's very popular out there. And I'm not talking about, I mean, the Israeli groups are some resident, uh, is, it's, it's an Israeli group. Palestinians mostly are diaspora. It, these are English-speaking groups. These aren't Arabic groups or Hebrew groups. And so, you know, I wonder, I think the sort of information compartmentalization and the... Uh, Self-censorship, both the mental and whatever self-censorship, is much more on the Palestinian side. And that is what worries me. Say that simply. Exactly what you said. Say it in simpler words. The Israelis are willing to do a lot more research and introspection. And as a result, they can bullshit a lot better. The Palestinians just don't want to research the other side. They are academically weak and their bullshitting is transparently hollow. You call out their bullshit for bullshit that it is. Is Palestine going through ethnic cleansing? No. Emphatically no. 
And I'll tell you why. And this is goes back to what we discussed before. Number one, population exchange is an accepted legal principle of the 20th century. It happened between Greece and Turkey. It happened between India and Pakistan. It happened between North and South Cyprus. All the Jews were ethnically cleansed from uh, Iraq, Yemen, uh, uh, Syria, uh, Lebanon, Egypt. There are no Jews left out there. Maybe one or two token families out of thousands, tens of thousands of Jews out there uh, uh, who are no longer left out there. It is an eth and this is an accepted principle of international law. It is just as legal as the San Remo Accords. It is just as legal as the UN uh, Partition of Palestine resolution, that you accept. It is an accepted principle of population exchange, number one. Number two, ethnic cleansing, no. Because Israel has a million and a half Muslim citizens of Israel. Outside of Gaza and the West. Outside of Gaza in Israel proper. Yeah. Okay. Several of them serve in the military. Some, Several of them serve in the embassy out here, in fact. Uh, in, well, in Delhi. I don't know the guys in the Bombay consulate, but... Uh, there are. I have several uh, Israeli Muslim friends uh, who work for the government, who serve in the Israeli military. Uh, they exist. There are Israeli Arabs, who, and some of them are Christians, some of them are Muslim, uh, mostly Muslim, but lots of Christians as well. What do your Muslim Israeli friends say about this whole thing? They're split. See, they know the history much better than the Palestinian side. Uh, so they are much more nuanced in their views than, say, a Palestinian Muslim is. Uh, I, I don't know. I've never researched the Palestinian education system, so I don't know what the Palestinian education system says. I presume it's like the Pakistani education system, which gives you an extremely convoluted view of history. Uh, and of course, they get very hurt when they see these images. Uh, some of them do blame Israel, but a vast majority of them are like, what the hell are we meant to do? Are we meant to just allow ourselves to get killed like this. Um, and there are, of course, several people who also uh, accept the Palestinian argument and refuse to condemn Hamas. Mm, all I can say is, if I have faltered as a podcaster, or if you want to see AIM again on the show, drop your comments under these podcasts. By the time the second one is released, I'm sure the first one has got people talking. Um, the beauty of a podcast is that while they, this may not be relevant 20 years later, uh, it's a big part of culture right now. My attempt is always to bring forward lots of different kinds of narratives. So you guys in the comment section are a very big part of the creative aspect of the show. Tell me what you thought of this. Uh, I'd actually especially love to hear some pro-Palestine opinions in the comments after these two episodes have been consumed by you. Uh, and hopefully be brought on for a three-way discussion yeah. on this. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry if you've been offended, but I'm not sorry at all. I'm not here to massage your ego and to reinforce your uh, delusional self-image. I'm here to give you a nasty truth bomb. Yeah, thank you for these two episodes. Thank you so much. It was entirely my pleasure. I wish it was under better circumstances, facing a tragedy, but it is what it is. So this was our two-part special on the Israel-Palestine war situation. Again, as a podcaster, I just hope I did justice. Of course, there's going to be listeners who'll think that this entire conversation was tilting in the favor of Israel much more. 
my job as a podcaster is to make subject experts sit in front of me and extract the depths of their opinion the one thing i can definitely tell you is that abhijit ayer mitra is not anti muslim he's not anti semitic he doesn't allow religion or his own emotions to get in the way of his logic his studies and he definitely doesn't allow his emotion to become a part of his opinion which is why i personally respect him i'm still a student i'm still trying to get to the depths of this issue so if you feel i could have done something better in this podcast or if you do not agree with what aim had to say please tell us in the comment section the joy of podcasting is that it's a continuous process i know there's a lot of viewers who may not have liked both these episodes we're open to the feedback we're open to bringing on guests that you recommend so please let's get to the depths of geopolitical understanding and let's get to the depths of truth this was a special conversation with aim and trs is going to be back very soon with a lot more geopolitical chats thank you all for listening tell us how we can get better